Welcome to Recommended Daily Dose. We are recording live from Teaneck, New Jersey at Holy Name Medical Center. I am Dr. Clinton Coleman, one of your co-hosts, a.k.a. the Oprah Winfrey of podcasting, healthcare podcasting. I'm with my co-host, Gail, right? Uh, Gail, or sometimes I go by Dr. Surit Sagar, but whichever you prefer. So today we have a special guest, Dr. Paul Hahn. He's a lung and sleep specialist. He'll be going over some uh, some sleep and maybe some smoking and vaping. We'll, we'll see how that goes. So stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to Recommended Daily Dose with Drs. Clinton Coleman and Suraj Sugger, the not-so-average health show with a unique spin on what's making headlines in healthcare. So, Dr. Han, um, welcome to the show. A little introduction, I think. Uh, he so, is a board-certified internal medicine, pulmonary, and sleep medicine doctor, as well as you do some critical care as well. Huh? So you're very busy. I, I saw your bio online. I don't, I don't know. Did you see his bio? It's you know it's it's so yeah. impressive. I actually right. yeah, it was it was really sort simple. of a rags to riches story, right? So I don't you don't know this, but you grew up in Bedside, Brooklyn, right? It comes from a very humble background, so right, yeah. right. So you had two choices in life: play basketball or a rap. Right, right. I, but, I was born in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, you were. Yeah, yeah. I just made it up. So you made it up, and then and lo and behold. So you didn't either. You you decided to go to medical school, right? Right, right. And become a pulmonologist. I wanted to be a dancer, but you, you wanted to, to be a hip hop dancer. But but you're certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, and sleep medicine, right? Right, right. So you went to Yale University, <clears throat> right? Yeah. And then you went to Robert Wood Johnson for uh, medical school. And you also did your residency at Montefiore Medical Center in New York and your fellowship in Columbia University Medical Center. So, Paul, would you say you're an overachiever? <laughs> well, you are not, but you are practicing uh, a whole host of services, including sleep medicine, pulmonary medicine, in uh, as well as here at Holy Name Medical Center. So we really are excited to have you on today because there's something very big going on. Uh, it's on the news. It's uh, it's on the questions of all our patients. It's really the idea of sleep as how important sleep is. So tell us a little bit about how that. does a pulmonologist get involved in sleep? It's like, is that something else that no one else wants to do? Or I don't see the co- connection between sleep and uh, pulmonary. Right. Actually, it's because um, you know, pulmonologists don't have a lot to do to begin with. So. Right. Usually we just do the sleep on the side, fill our day. Right, you tell people to puff into a, uh, a chamber and you measure it, and, right? Yeah. Right, right. But all right, but, but all kidding aside. <laughs> in all seriousness, yeah. we, uh, we usually, um, actually a lot of sleep problems are, are, are breathing problems, and, um, and that's why a lot of pulmonologists actually end up becoming, uh, becoming sleep doctors. So breathing problems, is this why I snore at night? That's why I hope I have no question... If not, I want to get an answer, but certainly my wife. But let's start with the easy question. How much sleep should we be having every night? Because, you know, we're all the doctors here. We all went through residency. We all were proud how we could stay up all night and see patients and, you know, survive on a couple hours of sleep. And now we're all a bit older. I think we realize that we may actually need to sleep more than we thought, right? Right. Most studies show that your optimal amount of sleep is somewhere between Eight to nine hours. So many people who, most people in the United States don't sleep enough. Now, Paul, who, who has time for eight to nine hours? Give us the real answer here. I mean, eight to nine hours, is that is that a real number? I've always heard seven to eight. You get eight to nine hours of sleep? Oh, my mom told me seven to eight. So I'm in bed by, you know, 12. You're in bed by 12, yeah. Up by 12, yeah. So, all right, so there's a range, certainly. Um, but is it not just the quantity of sleep, right? It's also the quality of sleep. So if I tell you that every night I fall asleep looking at an iPhone or an iPad, that's probably not a good idea. Right. 
In terms of the, the amount of sleep, it, it's pretty much usually, when they measure the amount of sleep that most people need, it's, it's usually falls between eight to nine hours. In the U.S., people sleep usually like the normal amount of sleep is about seven and a half hours. Mm. But when you look at how much sleep people need to like function optimally, they've done all these tests to see how much like um, you know neurocognitive function and what makes you perform the best on the on on the next day. It's usually between eight to eight to nine hours. And less than that is not enough, and even more than that is probably too much. You can be better than you are, actually. You know, that's what I think. <laughs> you know, for me, I believe it. Uh, for Dr. Coleman, I'm not sure if that's possible, but we'll have to see. Maybe if you sleep more, you'll be even more super than you already No, but are. they've done studies, right, showing that if you sleep too much, it's not good, right? Actually, I think there's been shown that if you sleep more than nine, uh, that the risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke actually goes up. So there's obviously a sweet spot, right? Well, but I don't know if those are... I don't know if those are causative type studies. They don't necessarily, I mean, you might be sleeping more because you have some kind of problem, and uh, that might be an indicator of some, some underlying disease. Ah, uh, so, that, you know, we should know that Paul is very academic, so, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but he's, he's read many Yale. books, and anytime I talk to him, he's always will tell me about some new books, some new studies. So, I hear what you're saying. No, for the listeners out there, you're basically saying that perhaps you're sleeping more because you already have some underlying health uh, disorder or concern, and that is what's increasing your risk, but that's important to note. So, okay, so we've established clearly, Paul, that the amount of sleep, but what about the quality of sleep? What are your thoughts? Well, like, should I be looking at an iPhone before I go to bed? Should uh, Dr. Coleman here be reading a book, or should he be reading a this Kindle? This is the concept of sleep hygiene, right? That's right. So I, I tend to tell my patients... I'm Googling it, obviously, but I tend to tell my patients there's a proper way to sleep, right? So not looking at any bright lights because you're affecting your circadian rhythm or not eating before you go to bed. Uh, bed is for only sleeping and other activities. But you know, Probably the, the one thing that's kind of changed in our society and changed how, how humans sleep for in the last like couple hundred years has been the, the invention of like electricity and artificial light. Right. And that's that might be the reason why we have su- such a big problem in our society with sleep. Um, it's a constant simulation. Light so, is like the most most powerful stimulator or um, the most powerful influencer of our circadian system. And uh, when people are exposed to light, it changes like our circadian cycle. We have like a natural circadian rhythm, which we kind of, which our bodies tell us how much sleep or when to sleep and when to wake up. So it's any light, because I know like on the iPhone, for instance, you can put like the um, lower uh, light setting, you know, the sleep setting, which is supposed to be less intense light. Does that make a difference? Right. Is um, it just a gimmick? There are studies which have looked at different like, frequencies of light. I think um, blue light has been shown to be kind of the most harmful right. or the most most um, prominent factor in terms of influencing our, our circadian cycle. So you're basically saying we should just shut off the electricity at night, and uh, if I want to read, I should read by candlelight. Is that possible? Is that, is that what we're saying here? I don't know. Oh, what about temperature of the room? You know, I've heard like you should keep the room cooler, right? Not so hot. Should I be sleeping uh, in uh, sweatpants or should I be sleeping in you know shorts? Does air temperature, the quality of the room, does that make a difference as well? Is it okay to sleep with socks? Oh, I've always heard that. You know, I, that, I think that might be a, I think that might be a, uh, a uh, old wives' tale. I don't know. But your mom told you always to sleep with socks or don't yeah, sleep yeah. with socks? Well, I sleep with socks, but I, I don't know. I, I hear different things. Is it gross? Or? Is it because your feet smell? Is it, is no, it, it's because no. my feet get cold. Right. I think um, there are some fungal studies which go with socks. and 
Fungal studies go with socks. All right. So that, that <laughs> I think we will leave that one there. So what about sleep aids? So some, some people take you know, Ambien or things to sleep. Um, and it's hard to distinguish whether they're addicted to the Ambien or addicted to good sleep. But, you know, people tend to rely on those medications. So is, is the end result the most important thing, like sleeping or... You know, should we be mindful of that? Yeah, I think this is something great because patients ask about this all the time. And as a physician, I'm always somewhat concerned about prescribing sleep aids. Using sleep aids, we have to like look at the risks and benefits of, of actually helping helping people sleep versus like the harms associated with um, different types of sleep aids. So, you know, sleep is so important for our well-being as well as our cognitive function, emotional and physical kind of functioning every day. Um, even relationships, you know, I get a little uh, snippety when I don't sleep properly, so I- I'm sure you do too, right? You know why? Because my kids still come into bed. Oh, that goes on the whole sleep hygiene. Uh, I yeah. shouldn't tell the story, but my, my eight-year-old and my six-year-old, they still come to the bed like three in the morning. And you're just too tired to My eight-year-old, kick like, he's not like a tiny guy, he's like a you know, football player, 80 pounds, so he comes in and kicks me in the back of my head, and it's just, I, I don't get quality sleep, but you know, I still look good in the morning when I wake up. You do, but you know that's a lot of I think makeup and probably yeah, uh, hair products. That's right. All right, so <laughs> you're talking about you're talking about co-sleeping. Co-sleeping right. though is not necessarily. I mean, it's it's really just a, a modern kind of Western phenomenon. Um, right. Yeah. People, people sleep people with sleep. their children all the time or in the same room. Oh, so you're saying it's a Western phenomenon to sleep separately, like in other indigenous societies, whatever. People all sleep in the floor in a mat together. But I was just talking about interrupting my sleep. I don't mind if we all go to sleep together, but the fact that they come in the room. One at a time and wake me up. So you're saying that pee? It's just it's a, it's, a, it's a mess. So you're saying that uh, mankind has not always slept in a king size bed uh, for since the beginning of time. It, probably people have always families have all slept right, there together. Are, there are reasons why people kind of feel comfortable sleeping together. It's kind of a natural instinct where families will sleep together, and it's only kind of a modern phenomenon where people sleep alone. Right. Ah, this, this is very interesting. All right. It's still cute now when he turns 16. I don't want him, you know, sleeping in my bed, talking to his girlfriend on the phone. That, you know, exactly. So it looks like Dr. Coleman has some work to do. Now, how about, you know, if we're talking about over-the-counter type stuff, what about people who say, well, I need a glass of wine before I go to bed? Um, a beer, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. It makes me a little sleepy. I, I right. need, you know, it's, 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 it relaxes me, and then I sleep better. Do you really get better sleep? You know, the... the Alcohol is a, a problem with sleep in terms of sleep. There's, right. um, it does have like this initial sedating effect. So many people can fall asleep better when they drink a little bit, but um, they it don't also s- interferes with the like the deep sleep that you can get. And many people they actually wake up wake up a little bit more anxious after a couple hours of after they. So they may fall asleep quicker, but they don't necessarily stay asleep, or they don't stay in. The different stages of sleep, REM sleep, etc. So, all right, I think this is probably something that most people know, but you'll be surprised how many patients say that, well, doc, I drink a little wine uh, and it helps me fall asleep. So, so what happens when you can't sleep? Or, or I, I see a lot of patients with sleep apnea now. So, I, I come to these patients because they have high blood pressure. And as you know, part of the workup is for sleep apnea. But it, I don't remember, like, during training, that was such a big deal. Or maybe I missed it. Is it like. I think you were sleeping that day. Ah, ah okay. The, but is it is something that we're more conscious of diagnosing or... And plus downstream, right. And then plus downstream, it seems to be more 
effects on health, right? So what are the effects? Why is sleep? Basically, what we're asking you is, why is sleep apnea so bad? Right. Well, over, I guess over over the last couple of decades, the data on sleep apnea has really kind of come out in terms of what how how it it affects our our functioning. Um, I don't know if the audience kind of really understands what sleep apnea is, or uh, should should, should I tell us? Why don't you why don't you uh, why don't you show us an example? But all right, I'll so when just... I think of sleep apnea, I think of you know a big eighteen centimeter neck circumference and a big guy who who snores loudly at night has daytime you know sleepiness. Right. I try to explain when I, when I see patients with sleep apnea, I try to explain the difference between what snoring is and and sleep apnea. So, right. so it's not the same. So not the same when people have, some people, snoring is actually very common. Many people snore at night. It's actually when you go to sleep, your kind of muscles relax, including the muscles in your upper airway. That lets you, that, that kind of like, your tongue can fall back. Your tongue is a big muscle. And things just relax in your upper airway and narrow the space there. When you gain weight, you also have like a more narrow space in your upper airway. Um, sleep apnea occurs when, when you're not getting enough Air flow, air flow through that that upper airway. So, um, kind of the diagnostic criteria that we use for sleep apnea is is a drop in oxygen levels. And how do you how do you test that? I know you're affiliated with the Holy Name Medical Center Sleep Lab, so someone can come in. Uh, and I know this because I actually did it a few years ago, and it's kind of like a hotel. Like your problem is you were farting in your sleep. Not, yeah, but not. I needed to get diagnosed. Right? Okay. So one needs a proper diagnosis okay. before getting treatment. Right. The most, the but, most actually most commonly nowadays people just do the sleep test at home. And that's what I was going to say, that I did it at home initially, and it, for some reason didn't work, and then I subsequently went in to the sleep lab here in Teaneck. But tell us a little bit more about that. What does that entail? So the essential part of the sleep t- test, or the, the part that I always look at first, is the oxygen levels. And that's actually, you know, because that's the, that's the essential kind of diagnostic and the most essential part of, like, whether or not somebody's breathing enough to get enough oxygen. If the oxygen levels are dropping... That's that's kind of um, the best indicator for whether or not somebody has sleep apnea. And essentially, you're waking up maybe tens or hundred times a night, right? You don't realize you're waking up, but that's all. That's why it's disrupting your sleep. That's why the next morning you feel so tired. Right. right. The that... oxygen levels are continuing to drop through the night, and right. and if you're you kind of need oxygen for all kinds of functions in your right um, it's important to, to get good good sleep, but also having low oxygen levels will eventually affect your your cardiovascular function, rates of cardiovascular kind of problems, as well as like stroke rates are increased in patients with sleep apnea. And um, and actually the, the reason why it's been in the news more recently has been the effect on um, cognitive function, increased rates of motor vehicle accidents. So you I, guys remember those two big train train, train crashes right. recently, the yeah. one in Hoboken. Yes, yeah, sure. And, um, I think the one in Brooklyn. Right. Brooklyn. It all so, comes. It all comes back all to Brooklyn. Back to Brooklyn. All back to Brooklyn. So both of those, both of the the conductors in both of those um, kind of uh, crashes have been were were found to have sleep apnea that was untreated. So they had daytime sleepiness, or what you would call somnolence, related to untreated sleep apnea. Well, I know here for a commercial driving license, you have to be evaluated. Well, I guess it's up to the the evaluator whether the patient has sleep apnea or not. It's a good idea to be evaluated. I think there's a lot of controversy whether or not they're going to make that a require, requirement, whether whether commercial drivers are, are tested or not. Right. You know, but who are we worried about? Because I don't know if you remember this. You were one of the first people who ever told me this idea that someone has a 
Pickwickian body habitus. Do you know where that word Pickwickian comes from? Yeah, I know, but can you explain it to everyone else? Uh, I may have forgotten. So, Paul, I, I know it has to do with a book, Pickwickian Papers, a character from that book. From, uh, from Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens, right? So, but he was kind of a obese guy who snored or, and oftentimes you think about these people with these really big necks, um, but not everyone that's obese or has a wide neck circumference, uh, um, those, aren't, those aren't the only people who are at risk, am I right? So, you can be kind of a skinny guy. Right. It's, and it, also, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why some people are prone to sleep apnea. People with big tonsils, or or um, even like if people's tongue or chin is kind of positioned a certain way, then they can be more more prone to sleep apnea. Um, you don't have to be necessarily obese, although obesity, when you gain weight, you don't just gain weight on the outside; you kind of gain weight on the inside too, so you get more crowding in the upper airway. All right. So this is uh, fascinating stuff. Anything so, else you want to add? Or? So. Um, how do you? How many episodes of apnea do you need to like diagnostic criteria? So, mo- generally, most studies show the more the more episodes of low oxygen you have at night, the worse your sleep apnea is. Usually, when you have like maybe twenty episodes an hour of, of low oxygen, then then it's associ- that that's been like solidly associated with all kinds of these kind of cardiovascular and um, neurocognitive problems. You know, I talk about neurocognitive, I think even um, with kids, things like ADHD, things like that are actually um, uh, thought to perhaps rule out other uh, pre-existing uh, um, uh, issues like like sleep apnea before you give that diagnosis. So sometimes the symptoms can overlap. Um, so that's fascinating stuff. So how are we treating it now, though, besides like weight loss for people who are overweight? Or really noisy machines. That's why I think a lot of patients out there are hesitant to put on these, what I'm saying, noisy machines, a CPAP mask. So what else can be done? Well, the breathe, the breathe right strips, those work, right? Right, those, those no. don't work at all. <laughs> they have, they have great, they have <laughs> great commercials. Like a, a month. But they have great commercials Some on people the radio. Caught yeah. They're putting band-aids on your nose. <laughs> I think they're supposed to open up your nasal passages ever so slightly, right? Right. Is that the like idea? compressing it, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> they might change the acoustics, but they don't necessarily like get rid of sleep. Apnea. All right, so how do, tell us how the physicians of your caliber how do how do you go around treating this? So say say I have sleep apnea, what what would you do to me? He, so, you know, Dr. Coleman can't really lose much more weight. Yeah, this is true. There's, there's different kind of approaches to treatment. Um, probably that machine that you're talking about, CPAP. Right. That's the most common treatment, and now, honestly, those. Those machines have really improved over the last, like, you know, dozen years. They've become much quieter, and um, they're smaller too. I think now. they've become like almost like intelligent machines that adjust by themselves. Um, masks have become much more um, comfortable so, to use. So, so intelligent, would you say they're going to replace the pulmonologist soon? Are they replace all of us? Possibly. So we're talking about AI, but I think that's a that's a different episode. There used to be these big masks that cover your whole face with the machine. Like it's not really sexy, but now you're saying they're sexy. They're sexier. Sexier. Okay, so that, that's that's a tough part. sell. You know, who wants to sleep with a machine? But what if night? what if someone doesn't? I know there's dentists out there who utilize uh, oral appliances. What's what's your thoughts on right. that? Right. So so a lot of the a lot of the apneas, a lot of the obstruction comes from the tongue right. falling back, and so by pull, your tongue is attached to your lower jaw. So when you pull the lower jaw forward, it kind of creates a little more space. So um, people use these kind of dental devices to improve, basically bring their jaw forward. And if all else fails, are there actually? I think. You want to tell us there's some actually surgical options in certain situations? Some people get a surgery done um, 
different people have different kind of, um, I guess, airways and the ENTs are, are good at looking at which patients are more kind of suitable for different types of intervention surgically. All right. So any other questions, Dr. Coleman? Um, I was just thinking about vaping. What do you think that's like? You just think about this every now and then? It just comes Because I see these kids walking down the street and they have like tons of smoke around their head. I think it's just so cool. And they come in different flavors, do you? So, but you think it's cool or is this is what? I think it's not cool. It's not cool, right? But I think that the kids think it's cool and this is a problem. Well, the problem is it's been marketed to kids, but it's also been marketed to people who are trying to stop smoking as a a safer option, like e-cigarettes as a transition off of like tobacco smoke. Do you... You you see people who are smoking, obviously. Do you, how do you go about that? Well, the vaping option. That's uh. You wouldn't recommend hookah, or hookah. I gotta say that the in in some ways also known as shisha in some countries. There's um, there's for kids obviously it's it's almost like um, kind of one of these introductory type of ways that people get more hooked on smoking. So we try to. I think to discourage like the the marketing of these um, devices to, to younger kids, but and that's a problem inherent, right? Because oftentimes the flavors and the actual vaping machines are colorful, and they're clearly being um, marketed to, uh, if not tweens, then teenagers, right? But at the same time, for for people who are already smokers, they're able. A lot of people are able to quit smoking by using these electronic cigarettes, and so it's 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 a helpful kind of aid to stop smoking in those patients. So So an adult who's already smoking, it's a lesser of two evils, would you say? But I think... I think a lot of the animal studies, a lot of the studies show that there's a lot less risk associated with the e-cigarettes than with the actual kind of traditional combustible cigarettes. But you're still inhaling toxins in your lungs, and that can lead to potentially lung disease in the future. And actually, some of these flavors, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when you heat them to very high temperatures, you can get byproducts like formaldehyde and other carcinogens. And you mentioned animal studies, but we don't really have any long-term human studies. Right. Long-term human studies don't exist, although i got to say that the animal studies are pretty encouraging in terms of their safety, the safety profile compared to cigarettes. All right. Let's just be clear here, kids, that uh, Dr. Hahn is not advocating <laughs> vaping for kids. Let's just be clear about that. All right. So, but since we're talking about smoking and, and you know, it's been done ad nauseum in terms of how bad it is for you. How do you approach smoking cessation besides uh, vaping as an option? Like w- when your patient comes in and they have COPD, emphysema, what, what do you tell them? How do you get them off cigarettes? Besides guilting them, or if they have an oxygen tank and they're smoking, like do you tell them? You, do you tell them? How do you sell it? Hey, you don't. You may explode. You know, like, I got to tell you that most people who come to see me when they're when they're smokers. They already have a problem. Right. I mean, they, there's not a whole lot that they don't understand about what's going on because most times I'm seeing the patients because they're they're having problems with breathing. Their oxygen levels are low. But do you have, have patients kind of who spot in their lung? Right. You know, these are people who are kind of ready to quit. So the goal here is obviously to prevent patients progressing where they're seeing you. And it starts in the primary care focus. Outside the pulmonologist's office, right? Right. When they get to me, it's maybe, maybe like already a little bit advanced. So, so do you tell them go ahead and smoke? You might as well continue, or not? Have at it. Just have at it, right? Have at it. <laughs> All right. So you know, it's been really interesting today. But 
you just don't deal with vaping. You just don't deal with sleep issues. I think it'd be interesting. Uh, you know, you and I work uh, Bergen County uh, TV department, and uh, but if you could, you know, so you have a lot of interest outside uh, what we've talked about today. But if you could say you could find a cure for one disease, what would it be? And you can think about it for a second. Uh, Dr. Coleman will sing some Jeopardy music or something. Right. I, I actually think that the when we what we started with was probably the most important kind of point that I would make is that. If people slept a little bit more, I think the world would be just a better place in general. It would be a bad business decision for you, though. You wouldn't. That's a Hallmark card moment, by the way. You know, I think we should market that. What, make, make the world a better place. Sleep. We should all sleep a little more. Yeah. All right, continue. Sorry I interrupted. No, we just wanted to thank Dr. Paul Hahn for, for joining us today. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to find you? You have a website? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, our website Twitter, is njlong.com. That's, uh, that's our website. And where is your office located? It's, uh, it's in Englewood, New Jersey. Uh, we're on Grand Avenue. Are you on social media? Uh, I'm not on social media. That's not true. I actually follow Paul on Instagram, and I think he's had two posts in the last 10 years. Uh, so maybe we'll have him work on that. Yeah, he'll work on that. I had, I had a spontaneous joke that I was going to tell, but... Yeah, please do. Please do. Uh, that would okay. be great. Um, why is it spontaneous? You have a spontaneous joke you wrote down. Well, I, I wanted attention. to ask you, what do you think of my outfit here? Ah, your outfit. Well, let's see. We have a tie that had peaked its popularity probably in 1986. Right. The Ferragamo knockoff. Right. Uh, we, yeah. You know, I was actually going to come, come, out, come out naked. Okay. Because of that, that other Korean doctor that came out in that movie and stole the show. Wow, that's uh, his name from... Um, that's what I was going to do. Oh, wait, which movie is this now? I'm like, a Hangover. Yeah. No, that was good. That guy. I tried. That was a joke. That was terrible. <laughs> was terrible. We'll cut that off. <laughs> All right, so we'd like to thank our host. Uh, we'd like to thank our... Thank yourself. Yes, thank uh, you. Like we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Paul Hahn. I'm your co-host, Dr. Surit Sugger. Dr. Clinton Coleman from Recommended Daily Dose. Thank you, Dr. Paul Hahn, for joining us. And where can we find? And where can they find us, uh, Dr. Coleman? At holynamemedicalcenter.org/slash/recommended/daily-dose. iTunes and Spotify. Until next time, be well. Check out recent episodes and learn more about these two modern medicine men and their podcast at holynamemedicalcenter.org/slash/recommended/daily-dose. <laughs>